forever. Dog. You know, black people being black people uh, that are not black people from the hood is something that we all knew intimately. But uh, to the larger audience, it was revolutionary. You know what I mean? And so, and so we were always laughing about it. We were like, this is crazy how, like, this is, but they'll see, they're going to like the movie, it's going to be great. And weren't we shocked when the movie came out and we had a really great, uh, you know, African-American audience, but we found out that other people were like, well, it seems like a movie just for black people, so we're not going. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or the 2008 comedy Sex Drive. Our guest this week is Harold Perrineau. Where to start? Lost, Romeo and Juliet, The Best Man, a ton of interesting theater, Claws, which if you haven't checked out, you really, really should, Oz. He has done so much work that has changed the temperature of show business that it's really a delight to talk to him. From Brooklyn to Hawaii and back again, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. Strap in. Please welcome Harold Perrineau. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Um, it, it's so it's so nice to see you. Uh, I, I gotta I, I gotta do the requisite lost questions. We're not going to spend the whole hour on it, I promise you. But how did how did the role of of Michael come into your lap? And then the question I ask all lost alums: How much did you know in advance? Like how? Much were they able to tell you, like, oh, by the way, this is down the pike, or were they, as rumors have suggested, winging it as they went along? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I don't have an answer to. But I'll tell Fair you, enough. Mike. Fair dude. enough. Fair uh, that's that's politically wise of you. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was in L.A. at the time, uh, and I was doing a play called uh, Top Dog Underdog uh, uh, at the uh, at the uh, Amundsen. Who was um, your Who was your other home. half for that? Uh, Lawrence Gilliard. Oh wow! Uh, wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we were we have been on tour with uh, Top Dog Underdog, and uh, and while we were here, we were auditioning for all the pilots uh, that were that were going down in, in L.A. at the time. And uh, I, I had gotten really close on a pilot. Uh, I, I so close. I mean, met directors talked to the cast members. The whole thing. I thought for sure I had it, and it all went away. So then I got a call about this audition for a show that kind of like Gilligan's Island, not really. They were on an island. Nobody knows how they got there. The plane crash, we don't know much else about it. And I was like, ugh, fine. Uh, I might go, I don't know, I have a show this night. I was, I was committed at some point to not go. I was just gonna drive to the theater and, and get warmed up. And then at the last minute, I was like, look, I'm here in LA, let's go. And I auditioned and I, and I turned around and I went to the studio and, uh, and there was J.J. Uh, Abrams Brian Burke and uh, and uh, 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 was was Damon and I think Damon Lindelof was there as well. I was trying right. to remember. Uh, and yeah, they were all there. And they're like, yeah, we have this thing. He's a dad. And so, like, let's see what you got. <laughs> and so, I auditioned, and they said they'd heard a lot about me because I worked with Tom Fontana and they were friends of his. And I was like, oh, okay, oh, right, of cool. And then I left. Yeah, yeah. And then I left, and I just went to the theater and I forgot about it. And then. 
the the next day, uh, I got a call back. I said, "You're gonna have a call back. It's gonna be with the studio. It's a, uh, you know, it's just it's for the role you auditioned for." I was like, "Cool." So I really went over it, and I showed up for like my screen test audition. And Brian Burke walked up to me and said, uh, "We only called you back, so don't fuck it up." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." Uh, you never only call one person back. And they like, never yeah. do that. They never do that. <laughs> I never, never do that. And I went in and voila, I got the job. That's how I wound up on, uh, on the show. Well, that's um, so interesting. We're going to hang on. I got to, I got to, I got to hang on that for one moment though, because we have a ton of actors who, <laughs> we have a ton of actors who listen to the show in, in various, uh, uh, stages of their careers. And I can't impress upon them enough the rarefied air we're talking about here. I mean, the whole deal with producers is they want to cover their asses. They want to make yeah. sure that their show goes to series. So they, they, they will bring in occasionally three or four, sometimes as many as five yeah. once yeah. in a great while for a less significant role too. But that's very rarely yeah. the case because everyone's terrified is the thing. Everyone wants to keep their job and everyone, exactly. look at all these options. We could go this way. We could go that way. We could go upside down. Yeah. You know, we there's yeah, a million yeah. colors of the rainbow here. And, and so that's, <laughs> that is really uh, striking and how flattering. Yeah. So, so when you go, so when you hear that, do you go, oh, this is in the bag? Or do you go, this is mine to lose? Is, it a, w w is the glass half full or half empty at that point? The glass is fully half, uh, half empty. Okay. <laughs> like, okay, so we're the, so uh, we're the same person. The we're exactly the yeah, same I person. Got the it. Okay. I was like, oh man, I better not fuck this up. <laughs> like, that's what he said. Don't fuck it up. Oh, Jesus, Brian. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> just in my head. Uh, but uh, I just focused up. It's like, look, let's let's go get this job. Let's let's just go do what we did. Let's go, let we we were close before. We can you can focus up and do it. And 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 I just went in there and do it. Did it. And like you said, it there is all there's always a, a bunch of other guys there. And I had already psyched myself up that like, how do you deal with it? How do you talk to other people? Some guy, most guys are just like, hey, what do you what's going on? We're auditioning for the same role. Every once in a while, you get a guy who's just so competitive that it, it makes it uncomfortable being in the same room. So yeah. I was gearing up for that. I had done it all season. Um, and uh, yeah, it is rarefied air. I, it, has, it had never happened before and has never happened again. <laughs> like, like it was like that. Nobody's ever like, no, no matter what I've done, I've done small roles and I've shown up and there are four guys deep uh, <laughs> and me. So uh, yeah. And uh, anyway, so yeah, that, you were right about that verified air. And yeah, I just focused up and went in and, uh, and, and it was right. They had sway. They, they, they liked me. They wanted me. It was, you know, it was J.J. Abrams. He got what he wanted. And so I was glad it was me this time. <laughs> so how much did you know? How, how far ahead did they warn you of stuff? This is coming down the pike. This is what, you know. This is what we have planned for. You're shaking your head already. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you usually got about about a week. Wow. Uh, which like you know it takes about like eight days or so to film an episode, and when you're toward the end of that episode, or close to the end, you get the next one, and that's really how far it is. And um, I tell people uh, this one story. Uh, I told it a few times in the final episodes of the first season. Uh, what they did because they were really. They didn't want any of the information to get out. So they sent us the script. At the, at the end of the script, 
there were like 10 pages that were gone. You know, it starts, you know, we're on a raft. And then uh, I see that uh, Michael is screaming Walt. And I don't know what happens in between there, right? I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. So they pick us up, the crack of dawn. We go out to the marina. And I'm like, right, we're on a raft. Cool, cool, cool. They go, let, let me tell you what's going to happen, Zach Fender, <laughs> who I'm working with now. So you guys are on this raft. Uh, while you're on the raft, you look out, you see a boat, there are other guys. We're like, oh, wow, there are, there are other people. Yeah, yeah, you see these other guys, you wave to them, they wave to you. They come over, they beat you up, they pick you up, they throw you in the water, they take your kid and they go. And I, and I, I just stop. And I, and, and I raise my hand. He goes, hey, what, what, what's up, Harold? And I was like, yeah, I can't swim. <laughs> Harold. He, he, he just looks at me like, what did you say? <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't swim. Uh, you so you're, you're 20 episodes. Know, 20 years old. <laughs> you're 22 episodes into a Hawaii gig, and they have just found this out. Yeah. Look, we were stuck on an island. We weren't going anywhere. There wasn't any getting <laughs> off. You know what I mean? And then they were like, oh, we're building a raft. I was like, oh, that's cool. But who knew they were going to throw you in the actual ocean? <laughs> so that's, that's how that's how little we knew. That's that's how little we knew ever. And how little they knew of you. So that leads me seamlessly. <laughs> that leads me seamlessly. So you can't swim. Tell me about growing up in Brooklyn. Ah, that yeah, really seamless. Well, well, well played, my friend. Well played. No, I just I know a lot. I, I know I, I know a bunch of people from Brooklyn who just didn't. I, I went to camp with a bunch of people from Brooklyn who you'd throw them in and they would sink and be like, "What the fuck is up out there? Are you have Coney Island?" What is- <laughs> no, no way. No getting in the water at Coney Island. Are you kidding? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I grew up in uh, East New York in uh, in these projects called Cypress Hills. It's, uh, right. it's way deep in Brooklyn. Are you from New York? Uh, yeah, I, I was born in Queens. I grew up in Manhattan, but I know I know East New York, ah, and I know uh, yeah. and I, I know the the Cypress Hill stop. Yeah, Cypress Hill projects, and so uh, we were uh, that's yeah, that's where I grew up. Um, you know, that's uh, I don't know what much, much else to say about that. It's it's the story of being in the growing up in the projects. You know, it was it's wild and rough, and I was the weirdo kid who played violin and and liked theater, but couldn't play any sports <laughs> like stuff. The only reason I ever got picked to be on the team was because I, I owned the basketball. Like, we got him <laughs> fine. <laughs> That's a way I say. I never thought, I never I thought that far you. ahead. I got picked last all the time. But I never owned any equipment. That was my – that's my – I got my dad to buy with me. Hey, Dad, can you give me a football? And then, then they'd have to choose me, my football. <laughs> so when, uh, yeah, when do you get exposed yeah. to – when do you get exposed to theater? When, are, when do you start going to see plays or, or when do you clash – latch on to the idea that, oh, acting is something you can do for a living. It's a really weird thing that I had wanted to do when I was really young. Um, uh, but um, I, I didn't. My aunt was going to Long Island University in Brooklyn, and there was a theater company. Back when they, the, the government used to support the arts, and there was funded. There was a funded program for kids in the arts, and this theater company uh, called Of, By, and For... Uh, was uh, run by this woman, Marion Rogers, and she had all these kids, and we would produce our own plays, write them, you know, music from wherever, and uh, that was the first time I was introduced to theater. I was a, I was a junior in high school already. Like I said, I was, I was playing violin, 
sneak it at home to the projects like once in a while, but not too much. I didn't want anybody to see me with it because I was already a nerd. And so I didn't want to get beat up with my own violin. So <laughs> where'd you, where'd you, go, to, where, where'd you go to high school? Uh, Erasmus Hall High School. Oh, Erasmus. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, uh, so, and so, yeah, in 11th grade, I was introduced to this uh, theater company and like the lights went on. Uh, like I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do before that. I didn't think I was going to play for a Philharmonic or anything like that. And literally the lights went on. It's like, Oh snap, this is what I want to do. And I wound up auditioning for this conservatory out in Virginia uh, called Shenandoah Conservatory. So I, I went there for two years of college and then I left and came back to New York uh, because I got a scholarship to dance at the Alvin Ailey school. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think people of, uh, realize that you have a huge dance background. I certainly didn't. Um, yeah. You study at Alvin Ailey. I mean, that's like one of the one yeah. of the greatest in the country. Was that was that was the idea to be like a triple threat, or what were you, or did you want to dance full time? No, no. The the idea was always to be an actor. I just didn't know how to get there. So one of the things that was really interesting when I got to Shenandoah. And uh, I met all these kids who had been doing theater their whole life. Uh, you know, they would always do this thing with me like, hey, Harold, let me ask you this question. You grew up in New York City and you came here to Virginia to go to school to study theater? Are you crazy? <laughs> and I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? But, you know, where I, where I was in Cyprus and Broadway, That's that was like I could have been in. Yeah, yeah. I could have been in Cambodia. Like that's how far away it felt. That is like, both a physical and metaphorical distance. That is uh Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like that. And and I actually that trip to Virginia, I actually needed that. I, I needed that to open up the world. I didn't I just didn't understand I only understood Brooklyn. I didn't understand much of anything else. And that really opened up the world to me. So that couple of years there at Shenandoah was it was actually fully necessary. Um, for me. And, and then, like I said, then I was like, yeah, what am I doing in this little town? And so I got a scholarship at the Al Albanelli School. Not like, hey, give me a scholarship. Like I worked my ass off and went back and got a scholarship. And like I was, uh, I was, I was working part time before, uh, before and I got the scholarship. And, and so then I danced there for a couple of years and, and had a dance career, all trying to be an actor. That's what it was all for. I really just wanted to be an actor. And I didn't realize that if you were going to be an actor, you just had to do that. So I well, danced for about 10 years and then stopped. Well, yes stopped. and no, though, because I'm, one of your first big roles is Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. That's one of your first, like, I think it's safe to say, right? That kind of changed the temperature of your career, right? And yeah, yeah. there's so much. I, I just watched it before, even before, um, watched it maybe six months ago, um, even before mm -hmm. this interview was on the books, because my kids had never seen it. And I was like, oh, oh you know, let's let's watch a, a really loud, flashy, sexy Shakespeare adaptation. You know, let's let's, <laughs> let's do that. Um, uh, you'll like it. The guy from Titanic said it. Here we go. So and, and, here we go. <laughs> and and it was amazing because I, I remember at the time being struck by your performance, which is very movement based. Your Mercutio is very much he's still mm -hmm. the witty smart ass of the play. But there is a level of physicality to him that I have not seen in other Mercutios. Yeah, yeah, and and, and a lot of it has to do with, well, a lot of that, most of it has to do with Baz Luhrmann. That he had an idea. Okay. Yeah, and I, I just happened to show up, and I had that background. Like I said, once I stopped dancing, 
I, I hid that I danced. So I like nobody knew that I danced because then they said, oh, let me see you dance. And that's all they would think of me. Actually. So uh, I hid that I danced. And so when I got there and they started showing me the character and they showed me this thing and they're like, you're going to be dancing in heels this high. I was like, perfect. Because I took point class. I know how to dance on my toes like that. Let's get it. <laughs> Come at me, like, bro. Hey, you can dance. <laughs> they're like, you can dance. I was like, yes, I can. So it was an actual uh, benefit. But it was Faz had already thought about him being that guy anyway. He wanted him to be so different than uh, either the Capulets or the Montague that, you know, he had this kind of movement base. He was really great with the guns and really physical and really like they were all young and lusty, but his was right on the top of his skin. You know what I mean? Right. And right, so, right, and, and that right. was a thing that Baz was looking for that we uh, worked together to, to try to create. It, it really, yeah. it, it comes across. There's a, um, a, a grace and, uh, and a sort of firework quality to him. And then when that's extinguished, um, you, you really feel it. And you also, it's always the, the hard part of that story is always, we've got to let ourselves have room for Romeo or Tony to have the rage, you know, in order to kill, wow. you know, our right. romantic lead has to kill someone. And that's a big jump. Wow. So the Mercutio has to be, it has to be a certain kind of awesome, you know, you've right. got to you really to, miss this guy. Face. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what was right. it? What was it like? I mean, I, in looking at like the grand scheme of your career, you've been on some real fucking like game changing projects, and, and we'll we'll talk about a, a lot of the big ones that kind of shifted not just your career but business in general. But like the first, um, the not first American, but the first non exclusively Australian Baz Luhrmann film, you know, and the Baz Luhrmann film is now sort of a brand and it's a, right. uh, you know, and, and there's a, and uh, yeah. he gets ripped off a lot, I think. Um, right. were, were, were there moments where you're like, this is crazy. Are we, is this going to work? We're like, there's, yeah, you know, the, <laughs> Well, the guns uh, are the guns are called swords. I, what's happening? A hundred percent. Like, yeah, you're okay. right. The first Baz Luhrmann movie, Sidney Ballroom, had come out, and that was really cool. And and this stuff was and, and was wild. And he let us be as wild as we wanted to be. You know what I mean? Within like a, a parameter, right? Uh, and and he was looking for. Uh, I, I I I say this all the time. All the reasons that I got the job for Baz Luhrmann are the reasons that I couldn't get a job in theater. You know, the way that I spoke, the way that the words came out of my mouth, my, my standard uh, American diction wasn't always so on point, but what he was looking for was not standard American speech. He was looking for a sound from New York. He was looking for a thing. All of that came out of my mouth really easily. So then do, a, do the Queen Mab like that, that's what he wanted. And that's, and that's why I was like, oh, this is exactly what I thought Shakespeare was. Like, I thought, I always think that Shakespeare really crosses all kind of cultures, that it's really only about the human condition, whether you're rich or poor or young or in love or not and hate. Like, it's really about the human condition. So him looking for the, that kind of language was really, was really uh, special uh, for me and really, really helpful. Um, uh, I've, I've sort of lost the point of all of this. 
Well, it was interesting. Uh, we were saying that yeah, how it, you didn't have the, the declamatory quality that you feel was keeping you out of of, uh, right. of theatrical of Shakespeare. Okay. Right. And so um, I, I, I think that that's, uh, I, I think all those things uh, work. And, uh, and uh, that's, that, 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 and that's, and that's in the Baz Luhrmann, uh, you know, lexicon. He wants to push the edges. He wants to like do all those things. That's why people are ripping him off. That's why it, 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 it lasts for so long because he just pulls in all of these things that, that we all really feel, but are too afraid to say. And so uh, I, I just think Baz is just brilliant. I, I think he's a brilliant guy. And I felt really fortunate to be able to work with him in this thing and him to work with me, you know, in, my, in, in the capacity that I had. We were talking earlier about how many people they'll bring in for an audition, and that makes me wonder. And sometimes they'll they'll put you through what are called chemistry reads, where you'll read with other actors, and they'll see if you guys work on camera together. How much do you remember about the audition process for the best man? For the best man, uh, the best man. <laughs> uh, that that's really uh, look. The, the audition process for Romeo and Juliet was a big, long process. Oh, and really? like, I remember like the last, the last audition, it was me and Baz in a room and he had like a camcorder. And at some point I was laying on my back on, on, on a desk and he was on top of me, like filming the whole thing. So that was really wild. For the best man, um, I got a call from Malcolm Lee, uh, who had written that role because he saw me in smoke. He says, I think you're the guy for this role. Uh, and then he, he wanted to offer me the job, but he was a new director as well. And so the studio was like, no, we need to see him. So I was in South Carolina. I had met this beautiful young girl. I asked her to come and help me record this audition for this thing I was doing. She was like, what's that? She played basketball. She was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I just need you to sit here and read these lines. And, 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 and I'm going to do this. She was like, okay, whatever. And uh, she did it, and I sent it in. Eventually, I got the job, but that's the lady I'm married to right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that's, that's the thing I remember most about my audition for The Best Man. Did they make you guys? Did you? That's the big takeaway. But I, I was watching. <laughs> I was watching The Best Man last night, and and there's so many scenes where you guys have, you know. 10, 14 years of, of history together in the script. I was looking at the poker scene, for instance. Do you remember the poker scene in that, yeah. in that film? Yeah. Which is so breezy and, and lived in, and the camera's in constant motion because you guys are all seated, so to keep it kind of visually exciting, the camera's moving all the time, but it's so... It feels a little improvised. It feels very lived in. And and I thought, like, oh, I was wondering if that's the sort of thing where they had, they did, like, a mix and match session or or uh, anything oh, like that. Because right. that felt like the sort of thing they, where anytime you play a group of guys, they're always like, okay, we're going to call in 12 guys and put them into groups of four. Right, right. Uh, they, 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 they didn't. I think, I think, again, this was one of those things that, uh, like, Malcolm had written parts for people. And some of the people he got and some he didn't. And, and, and but, uh, you know, everybody was pretty up and coming. Uh, Tay had done Stella, how Stella got a groove back. 
Mars Chestnut still had all the fame from Boys in the Hood, all the things he was doing. Terrence Howard was just killing the game, doing everything he had done. I had just done Romeo and Juliet. Nia Long is Nia Long. There's nothing sure. good to say. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so <laughs> she's just her, and she's great. And um, and so, no, they put us all in the, in, in, in the room together once we all had the gig. Really? And we all just get along. It That's, worked. We all just right away got along. That's so great. That's it. I mean, it's also a, a testament yeah. to like what a colossal waste of time chemistry reads can be sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like you don't really always need them. <laughs> you get four really good actors together. They can pretend that they love each other and it'll be fine. Um, you know, I was trying to, I, I remember when that film came out and I remember it being a big deal on a couple of fronts because here was a major studio romantic comedy drama with a, a, a cast the four the four male leads are black and most of the time you either that would be an indie or it'd be a studio film but there'd be a crime element or there'd be a right. a rather intense um uh social message in it and this is just a story about four friends uh and and how weird your 20s are and 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 i remember not fully understanding why that was historic at the time. I hate to admit that, but, right. um, but it was, yeah, it really, yeah, yeah. it, and then it, it, it opened up the door to a bunch of, of, there were all these great romantic comedies and ensemble pieces that came out that started to come out around the turn of the century there, you know, because you had uh, those and, and all the uh, Sinal Lathan uh, movies oh, that followed that. Love Jones, Love and Basketball, all of those. All those, get Brown Sugar. All of them. Um, and, Brown and, Sugar, yeah. Yeah, and, there, and, and it's, uh, did you guys have a sense that like, oh, wow, this is, this is a paradigm shift. Something different is happening on this mm. film. Well, we, we, when we were doing the film, we, we understood the paradigm shift because it, all the things that you're saying, uh, you know, and not, not to get overly political. To get some Knock yourself out. To get overly political. But, uh, you know, just, um, you know, black people being black people uh, that are not black people from the hood, is something that we all knew intimately, but uh, to the larger audience, it was revolutionary. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and so we were always laughing about it. We were like, this is crazy how, like, this is, but they'll see, they're going to like the movie, it's going to be great. And weren't we shocked when the movie came out and we had a really great, uh, you know, African-American audience, but we found out that other people were like, well, it seems like a movie just for black people, so we're not going. And it was like, wait, 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 wait time out. Like, what, what, what's happening? What are, what are we talking about here? Like, this is a, it's about four friends in college. One of them wrote a book. One of them was on his. One of their dad owns a business, and he's going to inherit it. Like the other guy's a lawyer, and he gave up. It's like this is an, a, it's a full American story. This is this is nothing nothing particularly African American. It is just an American story. And, and they have all really nice was, apartments. <laughs> they have amazing <laughs> apartments and beautiful like friends, and like they go to cool clubs, and it's like yeah, it wound up being a thing that's like oh. Wow, the audience is uh they're they're looking at the faces and they're saying like, "Oh, it's not for me." And I, and I was shocked by it. You know, I was shocked cuz I was thinking, you know, as a person of color like if I did that with every movie 
you know, I saw I'd never be an Al Pacino fan. I'd be like, ah, you got to be Italian to see, you know, an Al Pacino movie or, you know, De Niro. Like, if I'd done that, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't know most of the great actors whose work I loved, you know what I mean? And so... Uh, we were really shocked by it, uh, but yes, it was revolutionary. But it did, it did and, well. And we it know. did well, and it earned a sequel. It did really well. Yeah, and that's the, that's the beautiful thing. But I, I was watching it, yeah. and, and um, I, I was what. Here's what was interesting to, to me. In the late '90s, we mm-hmm. the word representation was not being used in white spaces. I, I'm your man on the inside. Right. Take it from me. We just it just was not a thing. That was, <laughs> no, not, it was not a thing that was being said, and that's not great, but that's the truth. And so, what's interesting about this movie is that it is able to show the full range of the human experience because it isn't like, well, we've got this one black guy in the film, so he has to be a saint. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that, right, right, and, right. and I, I, I just feel like as an actor, that's got to be so because you're all so fucking complicated in that movie. You're all yeah. and your loyalty yeah. shift throughout it. And then the last half hour is, you know, because it's kind of like it's like, oh, this is a really nice kind of feel good movie. And there's obviously something we don't know entirely. And then the last half hour is kind of a nail biter because you don't know how I'm not going to give anything away, but you don't know how shit's going to go down. And, and, and exactly. the, the stakes go through the fucking roof for a moment there, and it's still funny, and it's still sexy, and right. it's still interesting. Right. But there's like yeah. ten different ways that movie could end, and and it, there had to be exactly. a sense as an actor of just like, oh my god, I don't have to be like the entire voice of my people in this 100%. thing because we're covered on all fronts 100%. here. That was that the hundred percent, a hundred percent. We all felt like that. It was like I said. The, the, these people weren't foreign to us, and so it was really nice to actually be on set where you don't you don't have to carry the burden of like I have to be you know the magical Negro in this thing and, and make sure that everybody like likes me and and like I do something great and so you know they give us us free whatever it is, <laughs> it is you know what I mean and so it was really we thought it was really special and, and the really great thing about it is that those all those other movies did come out. Uh, and and all those other actors and all those writers and directors got a chance to actually do stuff, and that was the beginning of that, like the black romantic comedies that all came out in like the nineties and the early the early aughts. Were really, you guys? Uh, you were right, right after Soul Food, right before Soul. Food? I feel like we you were right. Were, we I think we were right before Soul Food. Okay, I think we were right before Soul. Food. Yeah, I think Soul Food came out. So I remember seeing Soul Food in the theater, and and uh, yeah. and and it was it was a similar milieu of like this sort of upper middle class family, and yeah. and and it's wide ranging um, things. So, but yeah, that was, we that right was a really food. interesting shift. So how yeah. crazy it is it to go from? And I no, I don't have my date right. So you're are you on a break from Oz when you shoot Best Man? Is that right? Uh, They're kind of contemporaneous there. Uh, So, uh, yes. Yeah, because uh, Oz, that was also a a game changer for a number of reasons. Uh, You know, being like the first dramatic show on a a cable network. Imagine Uh, that. An hour-long drama. A prestige hour-long drama with a great cast on a cable network. The mind boggles. This will never work. (laughs) 
It'll, it'll never work. <laughs> it'll never work. I remember the execs used to come on uh, on set for Oz, and they go, what are they doing? It's like, oh, he just gave that guy a blowjob, and now he's going to break his neck. Yeah, there it is. Right. They just go like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just walk out. So, um, because we don't have advertisers. We don't have advertisers. We don't have, we have no one to answer to. It's the fucking Wild West. <laughs> Go crazy. <laughs> and uh, what, we, what we had was eight episodes. We had an eight-episode season. That was another thing that wasn't heard of. Every show that was a drama was 22 episodes on a network. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so we had eight episodes. So we were on... We were on our hiatus from from Oz, and so right after the Best Man, I went directly back into Oz, and then we had another hiatus, and that's that's how that worked out. So, yeah. why why do you think? I have so many questions about Oz. You know, as someone who does this podcast and is a fan of American character actors, Oz is porn. Oz is insane. I mean, fucking. <laughs> Terry right. Kinney and, right? and Tim Hopper and Eamon Walker, who I know is an American, but it's just but it's the, the right. fucking people on that show. And I remembered a lot of you right. guys, and I remember that J.K. Simmons yeah. was on it, but every frame is packed with somebody who is now yeah. a little bit balder and a lot more famous. Exactly. <laughs> Chris Maloney's the like, yeah, the uh everybody, every everybody, yeah. It, it's an incredible cast. Why do you, was it, why does your, why is your character the narrator? Why is it, why did, what is it about this guy that he is going to be our way in? You, you, you actually said it without even knowing it. Like we don't have any commercials. And, and one of the things that Tom realized really early on. This is Tom Fontana. Really bad action, really bad action, really bad action. Yeah, Yeah. Tom Fontana, the writer uh, of Oz, the creator. Bad action, bad action, terrible people have so we needed a break. We needed a, we needed to stop. Reset. And we don't have any commercials. I was the commercial. I was literally the commercial break. Or or the act break that, to a certain extent. You were sort of like yeah, there's a, there's or, a, a, or the act break. There you know, I was I was yeah, gonna show I was yeah, I, I was going to show off and say, oh, there's something Brechtian about the way you address the camera, but no, it's sort of Shakespearean almost. You're kind of like leading us yeah, into the I, act. Yeah. And here's, you know, yeah. here's Prince yeah. Hal on the field of Agincourt behind you. And, and let me explain what's about to happen kind of thing, isn't there? You're doing a good job, humble. You're doing a good job. You're like humble bragging. And I like it. Yeah. You like all your experience. You like that? It's really important that people know I've read books. People need to know I've read books. I dig it. So, yes, it's very Shakespearean. It is very much that it is... But in a more practical, in the you know, in our century, it was the commercial break, and uh, and and we, and me and Tom Fontana talked about that quite a bit. He was like, "I need it to be like moving and entertaining," but he's uh, you know paraplegic, so you'll only have the top half of your body to work with. <laughs> so how about it? <laughs> so There's... it was really it was really fun. You mentioned the uh, the paraplegic thing. There's obviously a, a, a movement over the past ten years or so to to give those roles to actors with disabilities. But in the '90s, there wasn't so much. So it fell to guys like you to do a great deal of research and prep so that it didn't look yeah. terrible. So did, were you going to like PT places or how did you? And 100%. remind me, your your character 100%. had been 
Your character had been paralyzed running from the cops. He'd fallen off a roof. Was that it? He'd been, yes, he'd been thrown off a roof. Yeah. Thrown <laughs> off a roof. Oh, thrown off okay. a roof naked. Yeah, naked in, in his, you know, his birthday suit, thrown off a roof, roof and uh, lost, uh, lost uh, uh, half of his body, the movement of half of his body. Um, and so, yeah, I went to a lot of places that did uh, rehab and uh, worked with people who were disabled. And that's where we... You know, we learned about the atrophying of the legs. And so we got uh, sweatpants that were really, really big so that it looked like, you know, like my legs were just kind of like hanging in there and, uh, and, uh, and, and then just worked really hard. And how do I just keep that, like, just top half of my body working? And we worked on that wheelchair for so long. I mean, my, my hands were just, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, callous from it. But we, we just needed to, to be like, Here's the thing. He didn't have to be perfect because it wasn't like he was he'd been that way his whole life. But we had to give him some time to have been in. He had more time in it than I did. I had a month. He had, <laughs> you know, he had already been in for a couple of years. So um, that's a really uh, interesting so point, though. Do. That's that's wild. The, the idea that it doesn't have to be a a lifetime of expertise you just have to have a certain right. comfort with it right right because he's still learning and so that's the that's the bit of it the character is still learning uh about it and so i didn't have to be as proficient as i was by the end of the sixth season you know what right. i mean and by the end of the sixth season i could race you like backwards <laughs> down a hallway like i'm that. sure i you was just... lightning on that thing you were so total murder ball at that point. Um, total murder ball. I can whip your ass and murder ball right up, right up. Exactly. It is wild to think about. I, you know, I, I don't feel that Oz gets the credit for opening up the this golden age of TV. TV that can deal with extremely difficult subjects in this case prison reform right. uh, uh, right. uh uh there's a, a ton of obvious racial issues in there um right. it, it's it's it doesn't quite because two years later it beats the sopranos to the air by two years you guys yes. are two years ahead of yeah. the sopranos Edie falco is a throwaway yeah. security guard in oz which is yeah. fucking mind-blowing <laughs> They could burn <laughs> off Edie Falco in like, oh, you're going to say one thing. Right. You're like one of the two women in this episode. You're going to say one uh, line in an episode, and that's your job. Um, but it, yes. but you can see the roots Edie of Falco. The Sopranos, of The Wire, of um, right. you even see a little West Wing in there in the in the way it's like right. we're going to talk about like the nuts and bolts of uh, of American society at its best and its right. worst. Um, were you? I'm trying to figure out what I'm asking here. It, was there a sense that we are completely uh, breaking new ground here? Was there a sense of like, why don't more people realize how awesome this show is? Because I was watching it again for the first time in 20 years and was like, this show's amazing. Why isn't it spoken of in the same reverent tones as these others? And I, I, yeah. I don't mean to... Yeah, you know, I don't mean to, to no, make no, it to right. diminish its, it, its, its mark because it made a mark. And yet... Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and and I, yet, I think it is, it, it is precisely because of all the things that you're talking about. Those are hard subjects to deal with, right? Yeah. Is prison retribution or is it rehabilitation or is it somewhere in the middle? 
uh, are, and how are we dealing with these people? Like, are we dealing with them based on their crime or the color of their skin or their the neighborhood they come from? Uh, do we give more deference to wardens who have connections to political uh, figures outside? Are we, do we care about the policies outside? Do we realize that prisoners inside can contact and reach out further than, you know, where the, the walls seem to have them? Those are all hard subjects to deal with. The homosexuality was was a big thing in there. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, extreme racism, not a little bit, like extreme hatred and racism on both sides. All things that were really hard to, to sit down and look at, but done brilliantly. So I, I, for one, think Oz doesn't get, not because I'm in it, I actually think Tom Fontana, who created it, doesn't get the, doesn't get, uh, what what he deserves uh, as, as far as the accolades he deserves for that show because it really did change the game. Now, all that being said, uh, we did a screening of the first episode of Odd, and and I could say maybe for m almost everybody, we walked out of there going, "Well, that was a nice career. It's over now. Nice knowing you all." Uh, take care. <laughs> you know wow. what I mean? Like that first episode, there's a guy peeing on the box and the box is like rolling around and there's like, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I, I think somewhere in that first season, uh, Jake, uh, no, Lee Turgeson has a fight with JK and he puts a bench over his neck and turns, pulls his pants down, shakes his, his shit face. His face. Like, yeah. Dumps on his face. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. We can just kiss the rest of our career. Goodbye. <laughs> Like, no one, no one's going to ever hire any of us ever again. Like, we were all a little like, okay, well, we tried it. It was an experiment. And and then it kept going. Each year, they picked us up again. And like you said, it didn't turn into the Sopranos, but they picked us up again, and they picked us up again. And uh, we were just that little show at some point that could. We were just those guys over there doing Oz, that crazy little show on HBO. And... Uh, and, uh, and that's where we sat for a long time. We sat kind of in that box and then everybody, and it's really weird. Like you said, Chris Maloney's there, JK is there, Lee Turgeson. I mean, everybody, Edie Falco, Edie fucking Falco. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, and it took a minute and everybody just kind of just exploded outside after that. So. It's, it's um, I remember one weird thing. There's a weird little bit of cross promotion in the early 2000s where they had, the gay couple on six feet under, like making up from a fight. And one guy says to the other, come on, let's just, let's just go watch Oz. And I was like, that's their, like, that's their show. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> nice. How sweet is that? That's just... <laughs> a lot of penises on Oz. <laughs> Everybody's right. penises on Oz. So. God bless him. That's great. That's so cute. Um, <laughs> that's the cutest thing about Oz right now is these two guys who watch it. What was it? I, I I have to ask. She's she's you know she's she's back in the zeitgeist. Thank God. Uh, what was it like working with Rita Moreno so much? Oh man, I gotta look. I don't have enough words to express how the joy, the uh, excitement, the um, the, uh, the thankfulness I have for Rita Moreno. You know, first, you know, when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies ever in the world was. West Side Story. Sure. Like, you ask anybody who knew me growing up, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Harold Jr. They'd go like, oh, yeah, Jr. likes shit like uh, West Side Story. That motherfucker's crazy. Uh, but, like, as my 
show. And so uh, Rita came on and, and, and we all just lost our minds. We were all like, what the hell? Is, what's, ha what's happening on this little show? Like, what's happening? And, uh, and I remember uh, the, the, the first season, we were having the, uh, the closing, uh, the end of season rap party. And I walked into a, I walked into this party, you know, kind of feeling myself. I'd done my first season of the show. And somebody sure, screams, sure. Harold! Harold! And I turn around, and it's Rita fucking Moreno. And I, I almost collapsed. I almost <laughs> collapsed. And she, I, she I, I went and I was talking to her. She had her arms around me and she's talking. And, and to this day, like, I, I, I still can't, kind of can't believe it. But she's been so helpful, like, talking to me about being an actor, talking about her career as an actor, as a woman of color, as, like, uh, as the, the amount of information she gave to us and love and respect. And I, I just don't have enough words for the gratitude that I, I have for you. some of your favorite not necessarily leading actors but your sort of supporting people when you were coming up that you would look at and be like oh wow that's an amazing career so like everyone loves al pacino everybody loves gene hackman yeah. um everyone loves denzel but who were the guys kind of in the margins that made you go oh wow what's that guy up to did you have guys like yeah that? uh uh yeah uh, you didn't uh so many and he's from the, of course there's always the chris walken of it like the, Always the, the Chris Walken. He's just like, man, what what would I do uh, to, to be like Chris Walken? Uh, uh, also an accomplished dancer. Uh, also an accomplished dancer. Uh, um, there was um, um, I, I don't know why I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, uh, but he was on Starsky and Hutch. Uh, and Antonio Fargus. Uh, Antonio Fargus. I just. Almost lost my mind. It would be Antonio Fargus. And for me, uh, Glenn Turman, who I've seen in Cooley High, just always like putting, putting it down. Glenn Turman and, uh, and uh, also Joe Morton. So all these wow. guys were guys that I was looking at. And I was just like, man, like, what, what, what the hell? Like, what would I do to be like these guys that are just constantly turning like in the, in the work over and over and over? I have been so, yeah, hounding Joe things Morton, things. hounding Joe Morton for this thing. Oh, oh really? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know if like I I I owe him money something. I don't know what's going on. I'm <laughs> hounding that guy. Um, Joe Morton. Is so fabulous so dude. fun fun trivia, which is going to lead me to my Lance, next, uh, Lance Hendrickson. Ooh. Oh, Lance uh, Hendrickson. Yeah. Oh man, good God! Just all these people. Anyway, go. Sorry. Next so you like you like those guys with like those um, those super intense eyes. Like you like that's kind of you're like really it's all like here, you know. Yeah. Those are those are your exactly. guys. So exactly. Legend holds that Glenn Turman was on a really short list for Han Solo. Oh. Yeah. Really. Right. Yeah. Legend wow. holds. No, I don't. That's you know. That's right. it. I, I, I. It's it's the internet. So who knows? But I have heard that Glenn Turman right. was on a super short list for Han Solo, which leads me to wow, ask wouldn't you: that Wouldn't that been Wouldn't that been a complete fucking shift of everything in 1977? <laughs> yeah, that would have been. Woo, wow. <laughs> right. Wow. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you know, yeah. as you just said, you know, he's he's coming off coolie high. He's hot as fuck right now. You know, um, right, right. And right. and they interestingly, instead of going to coolie high, went to American Graffiti. Conversation for another time. Anyway, <laughs> are there are there uh, roles that that got away uh, from you? Is there are, are there you don't have to be. It's nothing that you have to be like uh, bitter about. But are there stuff where you're like, right. oh, I was this fucking close. Yeah, are there there, there aren't uh, there aren't a ton of them. Uh, um, oh, okay. So you just book everything. Well, good for you. This interview's over. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not that. I didn't. I certainly just didn't book everything. Uh, there, there's a lot of roles that, like, you know, when um, uh, there were a lot of roles that just didn't wind up just not going my way, and I thought that they were a joke. Uh, what's Tupac's first movie? Um, Juice. Um, Juice. You know, when Juice was happening, I thought like, sure, I could, I could work this out, and it just wasn't like anywhere in my. Uh, I, I got close and then, then it was all gone. Uh, I remember uh, going to like one of the final auditions uh, for the Broadway play of, um, uh, of uh, Angels in America that went to Jeffrey Wright. Oh, so wow. certainly there are lots of places. Yeah, so there are lots of things. That, Basquiat that Jeffrey again, Jeffrey Wright did. <laughs> so there are lots of them um, that, that, that I missed out on. I, I, what I was trying to say is that I actually have been quite fortunate in, in, in my own right. So, like, I don't want to seem like some, like, oh, yeah, I wish I could have done that. Because I've actually been wildly fortunate. You know what I mean? Oh, no. I, but I, there, I, there I, definitely should be a couple of things that... No, I, I, I asked that question. Um, I asked that question just because I, I think it's good for young actors to hear and I right. also think it's kind of this is a really geeky thing to say, but I think it's kind of fun to have a sort of uh, Marvel multiverse where you are Basquiat and uh, John Carroll Lynch <laughs> is Walter White and Mackenzie Mc Aston is the lead in Titanic. I'm going off of things that people have told me. Dylan Baker is the lead on the American office. You know, we've, we've had a bunch of instances, wow. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. interesting to think about all these different timelines, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> the multiverse. I, I, um, I, I want to get back to the idea of the, the topic of portraying disability again. I watched Claws for the first time, which was, I got to mm -hmm. say, not, I don't think it was correctly marketed, that show. It's, it, it looked to me like, oh, this is like kind of a fun workplace comedy, and it's breaking fucking bad. And I, I was not yeah. led <laughs> to understand that from the advertising. Yeah, you play an, a neuroatypical character on that. Was that also a, a guess that's an easy thing to fuck up. That can turn into caricature <laughs> dangerously close. And hey, you don't. You brought so some bad. real fucking nuance to it. Who did you yeah, how did you so go about that? Bad. We talked to everybody who would talk to us. I talked to like uh we had some kids in my daughter's class who who were uh, not neurotypical learners, and I talked to them and their parents, and they were nice enough to talk to me too, through things. I watched every video that I could get my, my little eyeballs on, on 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 YouTube. There's a girl who uh, who does autism. Uh, let's talk about autism, and she just talked about everything from stimming to hand waving, like all these different things that I, I had no idea. What was idea the, the first the about. first word you said? Did you say stimming? 
stimming, yeah, when you when something is happening from you and you start to um, uh, uh, you, you have a reaction that becomes a repetitive reaction. Okay. Uh, but you're but you're just overloaded uh, neuro, neurologically, uh, uh, physiologically, you're overloaded, and so you start to uh, you you start things start happening. It's called stimming. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, so we uh, talked to them. We went to schools. Uh, I collaborated with uh, doctors that uh, that T. Uh, TNT sent to me and and with the writers, Janine Sherman Barois. We all just collaborated because we were like, listen, nobody wants to fuck this up at all. Like right. at all. Because this is yeah, we don't want to be out there like doing some caricature of a person, you know, who's uh who, you know, who's has a uh uh you know, basically a learning disability. Not even a disability, I don't even know how to say it anymore. Who's a learning difference. Yeah. You know what I mean? A, process, a processing difference, yeah, and uh, and so we tried really hard to make sure uh, it we did not mess that up, and yeah, and and I got lucky enough to you know partnered with Nisi Nash, who's just she's a boss, she's a baller and a boss, and she got to play, and she uh, was the best big sister I could you know ever have, man. She's just we connected, we like totally connected, and she's also one of the funniest people you're ever gonna meet. Um, uh, she's naturally funny, and I am not. Uh, like I, I, I work really hard uh, because I'm always embarrassed about everything. So oh, we actually we talked on the phone a few times. Well, I, I think, uh, but we talked on the phone a few times. But by the time I got to set, I was so scared that I was going to mess up that I just stayed in the character, and she was trying to communicate with me, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't stop doing it because I was afraid if I stopped. I was just going to be, I was going to be out of sorts. And so she's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> she's like, all right, I see what we're doing. And then and she just jumped right in. And then from that moment on, we were, uh, we were tied together. We were connected. Uh, and she, uh, she let me uh, be scared and do my thing. <laughs> and then she came and did her thing. And it was just, it was magic. But that's a, it's a really great show. And it's a, a great show led by five amazing women who are just interesting and diverse and like smart and funny and cool. And yeah, it wasn't, I don't think uh, it got, again, another one of those shows that didn't get it just deserves. So. I mean, it got, it, you well, know, uh, five seasons is nothing to sneeze at and it had a definite cult following. Um, and yeah. uh, I just, I, I didn't give it the bandwidth because I didn't, I, I didn't understand what it was. Uh, but it's excellent. I'm going to go right. back. I'm absolutely going to go back and yeah, and yeah. Uh, watch because you're great, and I'm friends with Jason Antoon. Um, oh, uh, you are. <laughs> yeah. Great, and great, I've great. worked. I, I worked great. with with Nisi on. I did a bunch of Reno nine one ones, and Nisi is Nisi takes like thirty seconds to call you baby after she's met you, and uh, I was also. <laughs> I was also hella nervous to be, you know, be improvising in front of her. And she just puts you at ease, man. She just has this, like, this quality where you're totally safe in front of her. Yeah, she really does. She's she's fantastic. And uh, I can, yeah, she's amazing. Did you know tutors? That's crazy. Yeah, I do, I do, I do. He, I want to talk about roles, roles that got away. <laughs> the reason I'm talking to you from my place in Los Angeles is because... 
Jason got the role uh, uh, in Hawaii that I went out for. <laughs> so his, oh, ass no. is, his ass is doing NCIS Hawaii, and I'm uh, I'm here doing doing my podcast. <laughs> doing my podcast. It's fine. It's fine. For my it's it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's a big move. That's a you know Hawaii is a lot. It's a lot. You know that. I don't have to tell you. Um. Uh, <laughs> um awesome job. The uh, uh, so we we often on this show we will disqualify someone who is the biggest face on the poster. We make the occasional exception. We're catching you just under the wire because I think I think from is going to change the temperature of your career again. Um, tell me about it. I've saw I, I've only seen the trailer. It hasn't dropped yet. It probably will be out by the time this this episode drops. But the trailer is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is terrifying. There, there's, we're gonna. It, it drops on the twentieth uh, of February. That's when uh, uh, you can see the first uh, episodes on Epics. Uh, but we also have a free live streaming on Twitter on the seventeenth. So I don't know when this is gonna drop, but everybody should know that if you don't have Epics, you can come check us out for free on Twitter, uh, six Pacific time, nine Eastern time, eight Central, um, and we're all gonna be there. So from. And from your mouth to God's ears, I actually think is is another game changer, at least for me. Um, it is a horror film. It's a horror show. Uh, I'm not usually, uh, horror is not my thing, though you could say Oz is horror, because if you were in <laughs> yeah. prison and rape was always just around the corner, <laughs> it could be horrible. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't characterize it as uh, as high comedy. You know, I mean, we can... We can... <laughs> We can split hairs if we want, but uh, but yeah, there's there's some horrific elements. <laughs> Jesus, you're smart and funny, John. Um, <laughs> you are smart and funny. Um, so it is a horror uh, uh, show. Uh, there are all the requisite horror things. There are jump scares, and there's blood and gore, and there's guts, and people dying, and screams, and all of the things, and monsters. You need to know, there are monsters. Uh, uh, what the show is about. Um, people who have been lured to this town, lured to this town, and once you're in the town, all roads lead back to the town. There is no escape. And when the sun goes down, the monsters come out to feed. And so I play the sheriff of the town. His name is uh, Boyd Stevens, and I am tasked with uh, making sure everyone is safe, protecting the town because he's a man of service. He's a man of service who is deeply troubled. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, service is where he lives. And you find out more about that as the, as the first season goes on. Service is what he's about. Uh, and, uh, it's just, uh, it's just a show filled with great characters. And it's, um, it, it's got lots of, uh, lots of story to tell in a 10 episode, uh, first season. It's got lots of story to tell. Some of them are creepy. Some of them are really fucking sad. Uh, and some, some of them are heartbreaking. And uh, some of them are funny. There's even some funny, a lot of funny stuff. We have a guy who plays the priest, Sean the Jumder. Again, like he's oh, I, uh, Canadian guy, he's like Canadian guy. Indian guy. Yeah, yeah, he's funny. So fucking funny, so funny. And and in this, he's playing a really serious character, uh, but so fucking good, and so funny. And um, I don't know if I said the f word enough there. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's our show. This little town sucks you in. You can't get out, and there are monsters. Are you uh, are, are you a horror fan? 
No, no. he shakes his head vehemently. No. no, we're not in a visual medium, but he's very upset at the mere uh, the mere mention of it, frankly. No, I, I tell my kid who loves horror. She's 27. She loves horror. I was like, I grew up in Cypress Hill. I'm good. I've seen it all. I don't need to go to the movies to see shit I already see. Like, I'm, I'm so, I'm good. You can keep all the blood and guts and killing. I, I'm good for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, That's yeah, fair. I'm not a horror fan at all. That's yeah, fair. yeah, I think it's fair. Um, it, it so looks for me, to I don't me, go for the horror project. Yeah. Yeah. But it looks to me sort of like it has a an element. I mean, I'm sure there are jump scares and there are some in the trailer. But what it also has is something that Lost did pretty well is that sense of creeping uncertainty that is in itself really mm -hmm. scary. So it's more of a um, mm -hmm. more of like a Rosemary's Baby scary than a than a Halloween Ooh, scary. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. Right. Uh, exactly right. There are, right. There's exactly right. There's a thing that seems to happen, but it also has Halloween scary elements. Right. We have right. one episode that, that's pretty much Halloween esque. You know what I mean? Like it is just filled with that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's more like Rosemary's Baby. If you get to see the poster that they have out now, you said you discount like the people sometimes on the poster. But if you look at it, there's a lot of uh, pers there's a lot of shifting perspective in that one poster. You look at the way he's looking at you and the people behind him and the way the road goes and the way the town sits. And that's what that's exactly where the show goes. It shifts perspectives quite often. Like you, you get a little like lost sometimes where you are, uh, like or what's happening or why it's going the way that it is going. But, but that's what makes it really great. That's what makes it really intriguing. It's not just so straightforward. And, uh, and you can you'll get it just from looking at that poster. Like, oh, I got it. This is more intricate. Than just you know that guy looking at me angrily. This is, this is <laughs> definitely there's more there's more behind this than that. One of the, one of the I, lost I guys that. is behind it, right? One of the uh, one of the lost producers. Two, uh, uh, Jack Jack Bender, who was our yeah, who was our writer, uh, who was our uh, directing ex executive producer on Lost. He's the same here on From. And Jeff Pinker, who's our showrunner, he was uh, one of the writers on Lost, but the uh, showrunner on Fringe. Uh, well, I oh, think okay. for a while she ran Alias, so they're all out of that J.J. Abrams camp uh, of like great artists who know how to like tell stories for television. Like they know how to tell stories. Period. I, I don't need to qualify it for television. They're just no, but it's different though because because you have to kind of slow your roll a little bit and and meet out information. Everything in film is mm -hmm. like get your whole have your goals set by 12 minutes in, you know. Any screenwriting right, class is just right. like and they've got to have their mission completely laid out at the 30 minute mark. But TV, right. especially nowadays allows you to give the story a little more breath, a little more breathing room. Right. 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 And especially for us we come out of the gate like gangbusters. And then, the, and then that second episode, without giving any weight, we kind of slow it down. We're like, let me let you catch up. And then the third episode, forget it. Gone again. Done. Gone. We're off to the races. We, we set you up. We told you who everybody was. And then we're back right at it. Uh, I, I, think, I think they know how to tell stories well. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be part of it. But I really trusted them. I really trusted, like, yeah. After six years of Lost, after... Mr. Mercedes and Game of Thrones and Fringe. I was like, these fellas, man, they know how to tell stories. And I want to be, I, I want to tell stories like that. I don't want it to be a story about like, 
oh, how is Mary Ellen going to get her next snap this week? You know what I mean? It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of that kind of a horror. So I, I'm really excited. I, really I am really excited for you. Uh, I feel like we have another uh, another uh, game changer on the way here, Harold. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it, man. And uh, I hope to see you around town uh, sometime soon. And that is an episode wrap on Harold Perrineau. He is at Harold Perrineau on Instagram and Twitter. And From is streaming on Epics right now. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <coughs> <coughs>